God, would you hear our prayer? Would you hear our cry? Our cry for mercy. God, we trust in you. We look to you. We fix our eyes on you. May we write your words upon our soul. May we be defined by your love for us. God, we love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Everett Metters. I'm one of the elders here, and we wanted to begin this time before our reading of Scripture with an acknowledgement that the first Sunday of November has been designated as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Throughout this world, we have brothers and sisters who are worshiping today in hiding in secret, in prison, in unknown places because they've been kidnapped for their faith. And we want to remember and acknowledge them, part of our family throughout this world. Out in the lobby, we have these world watch lists, which are produced by the ministry Open Doors, which is a ministry to persecuted believers and to uh, and for missions in closed countries where the gospel is not welcomed, where it is officially and actively suppressed. And the watch lists list the 50 countries that are uh, where persecution is the most intense. So we encourage you, if you haven't yet, to take one of those. They're out in the lobby underneath the TV on the north wall. To take one of those and pray through that. Pray for the the different countries and our brothers and sisters that are there. If uh, if it's if this is something that connects with you, that uh, convicts or interests you, and you want to know what's going on, uh, you can look up Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors. Those are both two very good ministries that uh, reach out to persecuted believers, and just. Be aware and be in prayer. So join me now as I pray for my brothers and sisters. Father, we remember your children throughout this world who are suppressed, who are beaten, who are exploited, who are imprisoned, who are kidnapped because they trust in you. Father, we pray that you would comfort them Lord, we pray for people like Leah Sharibu, who was kidnapped in Nigeria, and Raymond Ko, who was kidnapped off the street in Malaysia. We pray for brothers that are in prison in China and Indonesia and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran and other countries because of your name. Lord, we pray for their families that mourn them. We pray for their families that mourn those who were killed in bombings in Sri Lanka and Indonesia this past year. 
for those who were killed in attacks on churches in Nigeria, who were driven out of their homes by criminal gangs in Guatemala and Mexico. Father, have mercy on your people. Lord, grant repentance to the persecutors. Father, let your people be bold wherever they are in the face of whatever persecutions, in the face of whatever government overreach, in the face of false believers who suppress them. Lord, have mercy and strengthen them with the words of Christ that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you for my name. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, strengthen those men and women that are in prison that are eager for opportunities to speak the gospel to other prisoners, where they're cooped up with hundreds of Muslims who can't leave, and they have an opportunity to speak, where they meet guards every day and have an opportunity to speak. Lord, give them wisdom and give them courage. Father, have mercy and strengthen your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 39. That's found on page 829 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 23, 29 to 39. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves, that you were the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. I'm going to move this cord over here. Glad to be worshiping with you this morning. 
Thanks to Steve for his sermon last week. I really appreciate the insights that Steve brings when it comes to discipleship, which is sort of the, the topic on the, on the table again this week. As Steve brought up, that, that word discipleship, it kind of sounds strange. It's not one that we're tossing around in coffee shops very often. It, it, it's a little bit Christianese, right? It's sort of like a Christian buzzword. But, but ultimately what it means to be a disciple is this. It means that you've chosen to shape your whole life around Jesus, around what he did and what he taught. So one Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, who, who's written just you know, book after book of tremendous material on discipleship, he, he, he often uses the term apprentice instead of disciple just because it, it, it's sort of more meaningful in our, in our day and age that we're sort of apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. I love that image. So the goal, in other words, is to become more and more and more like Jesus as we go along. That's increasingly what, what we want to be pursuing as a church. In fact, one of the things that we're going to be increasingly focusing on is just how we can be a community that really takes sort of spiritual responsibility for one another, that where we, we learn how to encourage each other with the gospel, which is why we're walking through the book Gospel Fluency right now, where we increasingly know what it is to sort of be open about our struggles and invite each other into our process of discipleship. So to use some of Steve's words, we want to be a community in which God's word is explosively alive. We want to be people who take spiritual responsibility for each other. We want to be a community of people who respond to God appropriately in every area of our lives. So this week we're continuing with the speech that that Jesus delivered to the Pharisees here in, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's biography of Jesus. And it's a passage that has a lot to say on, dis, on, on what discipleship is, because it has a lot to say on what discipleship is not, right? Like, Jesus is, is castigating the Pharisees because they have failed in, in every way to, to live up to, to what it actually means to be the people of God. And so we, we want to figure out how do we avoid hearing these words directed at us, right? How do we avoid being the sorts of people who can rightly be called brood of vipers? Jesus doesn't hold back. He's pretty savage in this section. So the Pharisees, they were incredibly pious people. They were devoted. They were spiritual athletes. They lived by these extremely strenuous rules. We're going to learn from the passage that that they would actually tithe their garden herbs, even. They would, like, tithe their spice rack, right? So they were, they were you know, they would pray in the open daily. They were, they were very, very impressive. And they saw themselves as trying to set an example for the rest of Israel to follow. And all these things that the Pharisees did, they did for a specific purpose. They were sort of doing it all to try to entice God to bring his kingdom, the Pharisees did what they did to sort of try to entice God to bring his kingdom. Now, to them, what that meant is, is they wanted to see national Israel restored. They wanted to be liberated out from under Roman rule. They wanted national restoration. They wanted their supremacy to sort of be reestablished. And so they did all these things to sort of demonstrate that they were the sorts of people who fit in in God's kingdom. We're the sorts of people who fit in in God's kingdom. That's what they're sort of trying to communicate. And again, they were very impressive, but not to Jesus. I think we're, we're very much like many of the folks in the first century. We're very impressed by spiritual athleticism, right? We're very impressed by, by someone who appears very, very spiritual, and they're kind of, you know, ascetic. They have all these these you know, disciplines, and, and they let us know that they, they have all these disciplines, right? And so we're, we're very sort of impressed by that. 
You know, and if you're coming from, from a background that's, that's not Christian, you know, you'll, you'll hear about somebody meditating multiple hours a day or, or being in touch with esoteric knowledge, right? Or, or from within the church, I spend this many hours a day praying and I never deviate from that. And we're very, very impressed by technique, by spiritual technique. But Jesus throws a wrench into all of that. Jesus sees something that many people miss. He sees that no matter how much the Pharisees talk about wanting God's kingdom to come, the only reason they want it is because of how it would benefit them and their self-image. They're looking to God to vindicate them. They want this place of honor and privilege. And so it's all sort of a show. It wasn't authentic faith. It wasn't faith inwardly and outwardly. It wasn't authentic. No matter how much they talked about God's kingdom and how much they wanted God to reign, they didn't want God to reign in their hearts. And it's a very sobering thing to realize that the, the thing they used to keep God at bay was their spirituality. The thing they used to keep God at bay was their religion. But authentic faith is the sort of faith that happens when God reigns in our hearts. It comes down to who we are giving our allegiance to deep down. And this is what Jesus is going after in his speech. And it's why it's so important for us to get a handle on, on, on this passage. Because if we're going to shape our lives by the way of Jesus, we, we need to realize that, that the way of Jesus doesn't happen on the outside only. It requires all of us. It requires that God rule in our hearts. And so that's what we're going to be exploring this, this morning. Pretty classic sort of, you know, uh, sermon, sermon outline. Main point, authentic faith is a faith that happens when God rules in our hearts. And we're going to explore four, four ways that, or, or, or four ways that, that God ruling in our hearts sort of shapes us. So the, the first one I want to look at is that when God rules in our hearts, he shapes our priorities. We end up sharing his priorities. So Everett started at verse 29. I'm actually going to start at verse 23. So if, if, you're, if you have your Bibles open, feel free to, to glance up. I'm going to read it out loud as well. So, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you're straining out a gnat, and you're swallowing a camel. That is a hilarious image to me. <laughs> Just the idea of somebody with a cup of, of water, like, oh, I really got to get this thing out of here, while there's a dromedary camel in the cup with it. It's, once again, Jesus being hilarious, even while he's saying something very, very serious. So, so here, what Jesus is talking about is something that was called the tithe. The tithe. So, essentially, the tithe was a portion of income or crop or, or food, livestock, or whatever, that the Israelites would give up. And they would give it up as an act of worship. They would give it as an act of worship. This, this sort of recognition that, that all their resources, they have all their resources as, as a gift from the Lord. But that, that act of worship, that, that act of, of giving, also had a really, really practical purpose. So when the Israelites would give up their tithe, 
the, the proceeds of that would go to, to sustain the priesthood, so basically the clergy. So the, the, the priests were not farmers. They couldn't farm. They didn't raise livestock. And so the way that God provided for them was through the gifts of the rest of the community. So the community would band together and provide the means for the priests to live, uh, basically. And the, the Pharisees took this very seriously. In fact, they would go so far as to, to not only give away crops from their garden— but they would even take the garden herbs, right? So the, the dill and the mint and cumin, these are sort of garden herbs that, that you'd ex- expect Israelites to maybe have. And so they were making sure that no part of their garden went untithed. Now, here's what's important to realize about this. Jesus doesn't have an issue with them tithing their herbs. Jesus doesn't have an issue with the practice of tithing spices. That's not what he has a problem with. He has a problem with why they're tithing their spices. He has a problem with the fact that the Pharisees are willing to get down on their hands and knees, muster up some herbs from their garden, measure them out, and tithe them. They go through all of that to tithe, but they won't lift a finger to help those in need. They love seeing God rule their garden, but they're indifferent to whether or not his rule is visible in their community. Their heart does not break for the materially poor. They don't pursue justice. They, they don't pursue mercy. They live uncharitably toward those around them. They have no grace, and they aren't faithful. There's no sort of fidelity that they have to God. And, and what's so hilarious about this is that that's the point of the law that they're, that they're putting all the emphasis on. Like, the point of the tithe was justice. The point of the tithe is that the priesthood would be able to live humane lives. But they've, they've totally uh, mistaken the means for the end. In other words, they've said that the whole point of this commandment that I tithe, the point of that is that I tithe. The point of the tithe is justice. They've mistaken the means for the end. In many ways, the Pharisees are sort of like a, a, a husband who, you know, his wife approaches him and says, I don't feel loved by you. You don't pay attention to me. In other words, you, you, you don't take any steps to be intimate with me, physically, emotionally. It's like you don't even want to know me. Now, what if the husband responded by, oh, I, oh, I, don't, I don't want to know you, right? Okay, well, you know, um, remember that other day when uh, I got you a Sunday? And I remember, you didn't have to tell me, I remembered that you like your Sunday with one scoop, half the amount of syrup, and no cherry. So I don't know you. Right, and then he goes back, like the headset goes back on, he's back at like Gears of War 5. And you're like, clearly this would not be like, so the husband in this case, he completely misses that, that being intimate with his wife is about more than just reliably recalling ice cream preferences, right? He's missed the fact that it's about knowing her and being known. It's about an increasing practice of vulnerability. It's about making the space where she can be vulnerable with you. He's missed all of that. Instead, he's made the means the, means the end. So if he's going to be intimate with his wife, it would probably be helpful to remember her ice cream preferences. But he's switched the means for the end. Authentic discipleship is about becoming people who share God's priorities We recognize the reason why he tells us to do what he tells us to do. But too often we we mix things up as well. 
We'll spend extra time in prayer, or we'll spend a lot of time getting our, our doctrine like, nice and orderly. We'll pour a lot into sort of spiritual disciplines and the technique of spiritual disciplines and remain completely apathetic to whether or not God's kingdom is visible in our community. We'll remain completely apathetic to seeing our affections changed and stirred toward Jesus. And yet, if we're going to be people who care enormously about seeing God's kingdom in our community, if we're going to be people who want our affections to be stirred toward Jesus, you'll end up spending time getting your doctrine right. You'll end up spending a lot of time in God's word and in prayer because those are the means to the end. God wants to rule our hearts, which means that every arena of life, including the garden, becomes a new opportunity to respond to God. Every arena of life becomes a new opportunity to respond to God. And what this means is that Jesus is calling us to something that is both more rigorous than what the Pharisees were about and more free it's more rigorous because it means that no, ma- that, that, that no part of ourselves can be withheld if we're to follow the way of Jesus. We are agreeing to become a new kind of person. Because here's the thing. God can rule our gardens, but not our hearts. If God rules our hearts, he will rule our gardens. Authentic discipleship in that way is, is more rigorous. But on the other hand, it's also more free than what the Pharisees were after. Because when we practice authentic discipleship, discipleship that's coming from the heart, the little stuff actually starts to sort of come naturally, I think. Our, our lives become full of these, like, it's like each moment becomes an opportunity for a creative act. We're, we're, we're no longer asking, how much do I have to give to God before I can get on with my life? Instead, we're asking, how much can I give? And so each opportunity becomes this sort of like creative engagement with life where we respond to the grace of God, where we respond to what he has revealed in the scriptures. Is this making sense? Is this helpful? Okay. So when God rules in our hearts, we share his priorities. Secondly, when God rules in our hearts, we find integrity. Which is kind of a vague thing for me to say. I hope, I hope to make sense of that in a second. So just down the road here, they recently built this little shopping center called Melody Farm. There it is. So this shopping center called Melody Farm. It's very aesthetic, very impressive. Also, Kuma's Corner, good burger joint. Very, very good. So the, 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 with Melody Farm, the goal is definitely to sort of like create a shopping center that feels like it belongs in Vernon Hills. Right? It, was, it, it, it was built to have a really strong sense of place. Whereas shopping centers and malls in the past, they were, they were very uniform and sort of non-eclectic, right? especially the indoor ones. Like if you're in Hawthorne Mall or Gurney Mills, it's sort of just right, pretty uniform. It doesn't have a, a, a lot of personality or character. And so, but, but nowadays, I think the, you know, the market, marketing teams and whatever, they're realizing that folks are going to go to a brick-and-mortar location. They want to feel like it's a place of authenticity, Right? This is an authentic place, right? They want to feel that way. They want to feel like there's some history there, some character or whatever. And so Melody Farm is trying to accomplish that with, with their aesthetics. They tried to, to build the look of Melody Farm to have like a sense of place, character, history. It's meant to look very authentic. So there's this one time where I was at Kuma's Corner meeting a friend, and again, 
really good burgers. So what I'm about to say about Melody Farm should not reflect on whether or not you should shop Melody Farm, um, because it's not going to be complimentary what I'm about to say. But anyway, so I was at Kuma's Corner. There's a burger joint in Melody Farm, and I was looking around, and they have one building, this one here, where it's sort of like Village of Vernon Hills. They have another building that says, like, Village of Vernon Hills Incorporated, uh, and then the year it was incorporated. There's another one that just says Market Building. Market Building. So there's a Market Building there also, and in both, in all these places, the words are sort of made made to look like they've been worn with age. They're, They're kind of made to look like they've been weathered. So the paint is faded. And it gives this impression from the outside that, like, these are old buildings, you know, from back when Vernon Hills was, was young. And people worked here with their hands. And, like, you know, this, this, is, this is real. This is authentic Vernon Hills. And so it, it makes you want to spend time and money at Melody Farm because it feels like you're part of the history, right? That's the whole goal. It's like, I'm a part of this now if I spend my money here. But of course, the, the hilarious part is that Melody Farm is not historic, right? It was built two years ago, and Vernon Hills as a town was established like 50 years ago. Like, there's no time for Vernon Hills to be historic, or, you know, like, to, you know, so like the paint on the buildings, it's not weathered. The workers who painted the facade painted the letters on so they would look weathered which is just a riot to me. So literally what happened was that like a local marketing team observed that like, hey, when a place looks authentic, people like to be there. But it takes a long time for that to happen. You know, first you have to have an aesthetic looking place to begin with, and then you just have to wait for 100 to 200 years, right? And it has to really truly become an established presence in the community. It has to age and weather over time. It has to accumulate stories and undergo change all while staying true to what made the building beautiful to begin with. And it's a lot of time to make a place feel authentic. So the Melody Farm marketing team, they skipped that. They, they cracked the code. They realized that, that it doesn't matter so much to shoppers whether or not a place is actually authentic. It only matters that it appears to be. It doesn't matter what it actually is. Only that it appears to be something we like from the outside. And it reminds me a lot of what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees here in this next section. It reminds me a lot of what I think Jesus could honestly say about me at so many moments. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones, all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. To really get at how scathing Jesus' words are here, we have to realize that a whole lot of what the Pharisees were undertaking had to do with cleanliness. They, they took, took the cleanliness laws in the, old, in the Torah very seriously because their whole idea is that they were trying to purify themselves if they could just purify themselves enough, live a rigorous enough life in that, in that way that, that God's kingdom would come. 
And in the Hebrew law, in the Torah, there were, there were a number of practices the nation was told to do. There were foods to avoid. They were to avoid contact with certain substances. Some of the laws applied to the whole nation, other just, others just to the priests. Although the Pharisees actually would do some of the laws that only applied to the priests because they were that serious about it. Now, these laws had been communicated, they'd been put in place to, to sort of say something to the nation of Israel. So when they would follow the purity laws, when, they would, when there were certain foods that were, that were not acceptable, and then there were certain foods that were, and there were certain ways of dressing so they wouldn't mix cloth, like, a, like cotton polyester blends wouldn't happen in the nation of Israel. So they would do these different things, but what, what, what was being communicated to them was that they are meant to be a set-apart people. And the reason why is because the God they serve is set apart. And the word is Holy. That God is entirely other, and that He called them out to be a distinct community of people set apart as He is set apart. And so there are all these practices in the law so that wherever they go, whatever they're doing, when they're getting dressed in the morning, when they're eating their breakfast, they're constantly being reminded of the nature of God and the nature of who they were meant to be. And the thing that would really, in the end of the day, set God's people apart wasn't going to be all these individual practices. It was going to be their lives. It was going to be their worship. It was going to be their love. It was going to be their grace and their zeal for justice and, and goodness. It was going to be their announcement of the true God. So ritual purity was never the thing that like set them apart. And it couldn't honor the way that God was set apart. It was going to be moral purity that would do that. It was going to be the way, inwardly, that they were truly God's people. But the Pharisees had mixed things around, and so Jesus says that outwardly they appear clean. They, they've, they've put all the weight on these cleanliness laws and forgotten what it is that really sets people apart. The most intense statement he makes is when he compares them to whitewashed tombs, right? On the outside, beautiful. You know, we can think of these gorgeous mausoleums that we see around Lake County. But on the inside, they are houses for the dead, which is the most unclean thing in the Hebrew law, corpses. So Jesus is saying, you guys look great. On the inside, you are full of corpses. As unclean as a tomb. Authentic discipleship leads us into a life of integrity. God is not impressed by displays of piety. He isn't impressed by spiritual athleticism. He isn't impressed by how stringently we live our lives, that there's no sincere love in our hearts for God. So recently I've become sort of like a devotee of Rich Mullins. Does anybody remember Rich Mullins? It wasn't that long ago, right? There's some hands that didn't go up. So you were probably born in the early 2000s. So Rich Mullins was a Christian singer-songwriter from the 80s and 90s. Not all of his music has aged well, but some of it has, and you should listen to, to that. But really, I've just taken a lot of inspiration from just watching through some of his interviews, because this guy was just on top of it. I, I really have just taken a lot of spiritual encouragement from just listening to Rich Mullins' interviews on my phone in the car, or on, on like YouTube or whatever. But he was once asked what holiness is, and he put it this way, to be truly holy means to be truly free. To be truly holy means to be truly free. 
the rigidity, the hyper-righteousness that we frequently encounter among people, the people that we're included among, that hyper-righteousness is no reflection of holiness whatsoever. Our rigidness is a reflection of the, of the fact that we are not yet so in love with God that it would be impossible to fall away from him. Our hyper-righteousness is a reflection of the fact that we are not yet so in love with God that it would be impossible to fall away from him. Authentic discipleship cannot happen without genuine love for God. And this is another way where Jesus' way is both more rigorous and more free than the way of the Pharisees. There's nothing higher that God could ask of us than our love. Love demands everything, so that's rigorous. But at the same time, as we grow in love for God, we, we begin to lose our taste for the things that, that are upsetting to him. So that as we truly love God, some of the, 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 you know, the small things in life begin to just sort of fall into place. Because we love God. Why would I do something that he hates? Why would I do something to disrupt my ability to respond to him, to relate to him? And so we end up being led by our love for God and not by some sort of burdensome set of rules. The the grace of God and the cross frees us to actually love him and then to actually be free. And so that informs the way we address our sin as well. Do you gossip? Love God. Are you addicted to pornography? Love God. Are you short-tempered and controlling toward people in your life? Love God. The way we begin to, to, to address our sin completely changes. We aren't just muscling our way out of these behaviors. We are choosing a higher love. And we might ask, how do I do that? I think that we're given that answer in Scripture that we grow in love by recognizing the way that God first loved us. That we, we develop our love for God the more we realize that, that he loved us enough to lay his life down for us. He asks everything of us because he gave everything for us. So when God rules in our hearts, we find integrity. Third, when God rules in our hearts, we find the path to real virtue. So verses 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. (laughs) Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, fulfill the measure of your prophets. And then Jesus quotes John the Baptist. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then he resumes his own words. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you'll kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And I'm sending them so that that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So what Jesus is referring to here is the way that the, 
the Pharisees, what they would do is they look back over Israel's past, and they would see the way in which the nation had, had turned away from God. Prophets would show up, and they would announce God's word to them. They would preach to the nation, and the nation would, would respond. The leadership would respond by killing them. And so the, the Pharisees are, are considering this past, right? This past of just slaying the prophets. And they're saying, well, because, you know, the, in the past we slayed the prophets, obviously the exile happened, all these terrible things happened. If only we had been there, right? We wouldn't have done that. We would have spoken up. We would have not participated in what was taking place. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to sort of absolve themselves, right? That, like, they are, they are the generations that came after these very same people, but they're saying, like, we are washing our hands of what our fathers did, right? We are not living consistently with what our fathers did. We, we have changed. We are different. We would not repeat the same mistakes. So they're, trying, they're disassociating themselves from, from the stuff in the past, disavowing it, right? So I, I think what's basically happening here is that the Pharisees are virtue signaling. What they're doing is they're looking back and, and realizing that, that this past has affected the nation, that, that there's a new way of life that they need to take up. And so what they're doing is they're sort of like publicly announcing, oh, we're not like that, right? Don't consider me part of that past. This point has been made by other pastors, but we live in a culture that loves to virtue signal. We're in this cultural moment where there's a big value on justice, which is, which is great, and we should thank God for that trend, because it's not always that way. If we're in a moment where it's easy for our hearts to be stirred toward justice, then praise God. But what I think more and more folks are recognizing, not just within the church but without, is that what, what ends up happening is, all right, so there's sort of this cultural emphasis on justice, right? So how am I going to prove that I'm in the in-group? I'm just going to say a lot about justice, I'm just going to talk a lot about how if I had been there in the antebellum south, I wouldn't have taken part in it. If I had been there, I wouldn't have helped to, you know, promote the Jim Crow laws. If I had been there, I would have protested Roe v. Wade. If I had just been there, I would have been different because I'm a different person. And so essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to say to those around us, like, hey, I'm, I'm on the inside. I'm on the right side of history. I'm not like those other folk. I'm different. And when we virtue signal, we don't actually love justice. We're just using justice. Take our, our social media presence, for instance, if you, if, if you have a social media presence. Have you ever advocated for a population that can't retweet you? Have you ever advocated for a population that can't retweet you? My fear is that we don't actually love the marginalized. My fear is that we're using them. They're valuable to us because we live in this cultural moment where if I advocate for them, people will be impressed. And if that's the case, then it's no surprise that on a broad cultural level, we don't see much interest in advocating the disabled, the very elderly, or the unborn. They can't retweet us. By nature, they are voiceless. As disciples of Jesus, we don't choose who to defend or not defend according to their utility. We don't choose who to love or not to love according to their utility. 
And right now, I, 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 I'm legitimately praising God for the way that evangelicals are sort of gaining a widespread interest in justice. There's been so many cool things that, that have been taking place. My fear is that what's actually taking place is that we, like the Pharisees, are building monuments to the prophets, saying that we would not be swayed by the winds of culture, but the only reason why we're advocating justice is because we're being swayed by the winds of culture. We're saying we would have known better, we would have done better, when really the only reason we're building the monuments to the prophets is because it's culturally advantageous. That worries me. Because if that's what we're doing, then when the winds of culture change, we won't keep advocating justice. We'll just continue to be shaped by the priorities of the majority. If the only reason why we're standing on these biblical ideas, if the only reason we're doing that is to gain social capital, then we will never have any kind of endurance. And certainly not when our advocacy makes us uncool or irrelevant or labels us as bigots, we will bow out. Because from the get-go, it was only really about being accepted. And it wasn't about the kingdom. In other words, we have to ask ourselves, do we love justice because we fear people? Or do we love justice because we fear God? Do we love justice because we fear people? Or do we love it because we fear God? Something else I'd like to point out about, about this moment in the passage is that you know, there, there's lots of talk about sort of generational sin, and a lot of it, I think, is, is um, not thought through well. You can tell I'm going off book. Um, a lot of it is not thought through particularly well, I think. But what Jesus says here does actually highlight a way in which generational sin is very real. We participate in the sins of the past if we aren't actually changed. If we are actually just perpetuating the same way of life, then we do participate in the past. We are a part of it. That's why Jesus, I think, quotes John the Baptist here, where he calls them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He's quoting John the Baptist back at the beginning of Matthew. Because what he's pointing out that moment is like, sure, you say that you would have protected the prophets. Man, you already killed one. You say you would have protected the prophets, but you already killed one. And you're about to kill another. If the Pharisees do not change, they participate in the past. And so that's why it's so important for us to have a spirituality that actually comes out of the fear of God and not the fear of people. So that we can endure the winds of culture when they're both blowing at our back and blowing at our face. So look at how Jesus describes his disciples in, the, in this moment. He, he talks about how I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. These are the, this is the church, the coming disciples of Jesus. And he says that some of them you're going to kill and crucify. Some you're going to flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. To follow in the way of Jesus will not always align with cultural moments. And the only way we can have the wherewithal to be enduring disciples is if we cling to the grace of God and fear him first. 
He has to rule in our hearts before our social media presence, before the opinions of our coworkers and friends, before the pressure of the age. If you want to be an individual in our time, it's not going to, be, it's not going to come by running your life by your own compass. It will come through the old-fashioned fear of God. When God rules in our hearts, we find the path to true virtue. Fourth, when God rules in our hearts, we live by repentance. So at this point, as I read this, he's going to talk about a coming judgment on Israel. And I won't be expanding much on that because that's what the next two weeks are for. But what I want us to notice right now is that as Jesus pronounces this judgment, he's not dismissive in the way that that I think I, I would be and often am. Instead, what I want us to notice is that Jesus expresses this almost motherly grief as he pronounces judgment on the Pharisees and on, um, on Israel. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. So see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What Jesus is referring to, I think, again, this is highly significant. He's speaking, you know, what's he talking about? He says, how often I've I've, I've wanted to gather your children together is he talking about his three years of ministry? I don't think so. He's talking for Yahweh over the course of Israel's history. He's speaking with the voice of God himself, and he is calling his people to repent. So we often think of repentance as this sort of like momentary thing that we do. It's sort of, oftentimes we think of it as something that happens at our conversion, where we, we say, all right, I'm done with all that bad stuff when really I think the sense that we get out of Scripture is that repentance is a lifestyle. That we just never stop repenting. That we're constantly in this process of, of diving into God's Word, into community with His people, into prayer, and we're discovering new parts of ourselves that are not at all responding to God as the way, in the way that they should, and we are again and again turning away, turning away back to His kingdom back to his way, back to what it is that we were made to be. That's just this repetitious thing that happens in our life. And it's a very difficult thing because I think we just hate realizing we're wrong about anything. But it just occurs to me that there is nothing more stagnating and uncreative than being impressed with ourselves. There's nothing more stagnating than pride. And that in repentance, we discover a life of true creativity in a way. It's a constant response to God, constantly being shaped by his word, constantly being shaped by prayer and by his people, inviting the input of his people, inviting the encouragement, recognizing our needs when we live by authentic discipleship, it's, it's really, really hard to be impressed by ourselves because we're living by repentance. We're repeatedly discovering new stuff that is just not good about us. 
But in that is life. In that is life. I think repentance is frightening to us because we feel like if we discover something wrong about ourselves, our identity crumbles. I can't handle being told I'm wrong. Right? Because who am I if I'm wrong? Who am I if I have to change? And it's amazing to me that that that's totally, that would be true if Jesus had not given himself for us on the cross. But because Jesus gave himself on the cross for us, our identity is established outside of our works, which means we can fearlessly admit, even publicly admit, that we are wrong. Because our identity isn't banking on it. Jesus is saving us from our sin for holiness. No, that's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you are that you are not impressed by our displays of piety. Thank you, Lord, that that you aren't impressed by spiritual techniques, but that you look to the heart. And I thank you, Lord, that you know us more deeply than we know ourselves. And you love us more than we even love ourselves. You know the darkest parts of ourself and still gave your life to reconcile us with our Creator. So I pray, Lord, that we would live in that grace and walk by the Spirit. Amen.